Blomcast. Turning Points in History. Wendepunkte in der Geschichte. Hello and welcome to the Blomcast, a podcast in which I, Philip Blom, look at turning points in history. This time I thought we might look at well, the biggest questions of them all, and also how history as a discipline, as a way of asking intelligent questions, can change. Because those biggest questions, they are, why do cultures arise in the first place and why do they vanish? Is it their superior technology that does it? Is it an ideological advantage as it killer applications of particular ideas? What makes societies flourish and why do they atrophy again? These are questions that have occupied historians throughout the ages and they have given different answers, mythical answers, narrative answers, really depending on the school of thought they belonged to. You remember perhaps um, Edward Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire where he tries to answer that about the Roman Empire and as a good Enlightenment writer he, um, he blames a religion quite a lot for the decline of the Roman Empire. Well, it's not quite as simple as that. It is much more complicated and much more interesting because it really shows you how a new perspective on things can unlock a completely new kind of historical understanding. History was traditionally seen as a grand narrative, first of all of kings and gods or god-kings or of saints and emperors, very much a heroic individual history. And only with the Enlightenment there was a more skeptical, a more empirical tone in the discussion and Evidence became a lot more important, documents became a lot more important in this kind of history. But it was still a history that could not or only very incompletely address the questions of why societies and why cultures seemingly fail and how it is that history tells of great empires that have come and gone without any and have left hardly any trace. We know, don't even know which language they spoke. You know that beautiful Shelley poem where someone comes across in the desert, across a fragment of a huge sculpture, of a huge um, sculpture of an emperor, and the legend of this sculpture reads that I am Ozymandias, the king of kings, and It says, look at my works, ye mighty, and despair, so I am the most powerful of you all. Well, nothing much was left of that. And that was the fate of so many cultures, and it has always intrigued historians why that could be. And um, the answers were hard to find, and I would say they are hard to find because history was seen in a very limited way, and that opened up only slowly, because only slowly um, did historians think, 
what was worth their attention, what was worth being dignified as history and throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, we've got history of the working classes, the history of women, the history of oppressed peoples, the history of criminals, the history of groups that had not been before in the in the eye, in the focus of historical attention. But history became even wider. It became even more a history of cultures, not only in their interchange with one another, but also of, of cultures in their interchanges with nature. And yes, with the beginning of the conservation movement, especially in the 1960s, the focus of history changed as well. And there was also another great shift, and that's scientific results. For the first time, the history of climate became some, something that could be studied empirically. For instance, ice cores that were taken out of thick ice shelves in the Arctic and Antarctic could give very detailed information about the weather and the climate year on year and century on century and suddenly climate became something that could be decoded and this climate record could be compared with human history and with moments in human history when we know that this human history changed. And here we get something that is really something new because since Hippocrates and since the Enlightenment, there had been historians and philosophers who had written about the fact that humans live in nature and that this nature influences them as much as they influence it. And that, for instance, the kind of landscape and the climate that a culture is in is very important for this culture. But this kind of thinking really exhausted itself in cliches. The thinking about humans in nature was very cliché-ridden. But now, suddenly, there, were, there was scientific evidence about different periods in history and how the weather had changed and other methods of scientific analysis, for instance, dendrochronology, where tree rings are looked at for how wide or narrow they are. And so what they say about the weather um, in a particular year and a particular sequence of years, or the analysis of plant deposits in different places. There are many ways now that climate can be analyzed, that past climates can be analyzed. And all of a sudden, a completely different window has opened up on human history. And we have learned that climate stands at the cradle and at the grave of entire cultures. And we really have to question our understanding of human history and human agency in the light of this very complex, often very difficult, but also very exciting collaboration between the human sciences and the natural sciences as we are beginning to write a new kind of human history through the interchange with a dynamic and changing nature. 
Why societies vanished has many answers and we can see some of them if we go in a very quick survey throughout history and see how climate and human societies are interlinked, very intimately interlinked. And when I speak about different cultures, I must say that I'm speaking from a position of ignorance here. I have studied European history. I have studied the time of the Enlightenment and the time of early modernity. But um, nobody is an expert for everything. So in the course of this podcast series, I'll be inviting experts from different fields to talk to me about their specialization to get a much better handle on these changes and these interchanges between climate and human societies. And of course, this whole history begins with the end of the Ice Age and the fact that human societies conquer, conquer, society, conquer territories further northwards, could spread further northwards, could spread from Africa and the Near East and Southern Europe, throughout Northern Europe, but also throughout Asia, Siberia, the Americas, etc., and a much greater um, movement of populations, of human populations became possible and therefore also a greater variety of cultures. So already at this moment in human history, a great event of climate change, namely the end of the Ice Age and the um, Europe becoming ice-free, most of Europe becoming ice-free, was at the beginning of this story of cultures. There had been other cultures before, um, there had also been other human species before, but now this culture and this history gained a new dynamism and differentiated out into many different cultures. And then there is, for many thousands of years, there's so little evidence and there's so little things we can know um, David Wengro and David Graeber just wrote, wrote a beautiful book, the, the Dawn of Everything, that looks at human societies and tries to show that perhaps the social models of our societies had, have not always been the only, um, the only model that human societies had, that perhaps human societies in early times were much more egalitarian, almost communist, thinking of the Indus Valley cultures that, like some other cultures, came relatively suddenly um, in the last 10,000 years and did not show, for instance, any sign of aristocratic architecture such as the cultures in Mesopotamia that arose or also those in China that arose relatively at the same time. So how is it possible that these cultures with such similar technologies as well as such similar cultural practices could arise in such different places? And no, we're not talking about aliens here, but it's an interesting question to ask, especially because the model these cultures had were all were, was very much based on proximity to a great river, to a great body of water, on canalization and therefore on intensification of agriculture and therefore of population growth and cultural complexity. That was a very 
strong model. It allowed several great cultures to flourish, but it was also a model that had its own flaws, as we shall come to see. So many points in history are occupied by mysterious collapses, and if you look at the history of the Near East and Africa and Europe, then there's nothing more stunning than the so-called Bronze Age collapse around 1200 before the Common Era, when great empires in the Eastern Mediterranean seem to have met their ruin within a few decades and from flourishing superpowers went to destroyed cities with dispersed populations. This Bronze Age collapse seems to have a lot to do with a series of droughts, but it also had other cultural um, factors that contributed to it. There's also the mysterious and intriguing question of the so-called sea peoples that seem to have raided even New Kingdom Egypt and caused great uh, devastation there and left a weakened Egypt and a weakened Mesopotamian empire and allowed the Phoenicians to rise and destroyed, for instance, the Mycenaean culture and allowed ancient Greek and Homer's world to come into existence. So in the case of the Bronze Age collapse, as we shall see in a subsequent conversation, really a series of droughts, a moment of drought in the climatic history seems to have been cataclysmic for an entire set of cultures and resulted in a quite different world and certainly a different world of power constellations. That we can see from the archaeological evidence very clearly, but the reasons for this change are still to some degree mysterious. But, of course, this is not just a European story. There's also the collapse of the Olmecs around 400 B before the Common Era, a flourishing culture that almost, uh, within a few decades again, um, vanishes without a trace. And the areas that were used for intensive agriculture all of a sudden become deserted. And then, of course, we come to the most fun question of all, the fall of the Roman Empire. What happened there? How could the greatest empire that this area of the world had ever seen so suddenly collapse? And what was the relationship with plague and hunger? And how much were plague and hunger a function of a climate wobble in the 4th and 5th and 6th centuries, in the, especially in the Mediterranean basin. So again, here we have to ask questions of the climate, but not just of the climate, because the Roman Empire is also a story of overexpansion. It's a story of greed. And then there's the fascinating question, is it also a question of decadence, or is that the fantasy of conservative writers who want to see the decline of virtue everywhere? Well, the decline of Rome can really um, keep, you in, keep you entertained for quite a while. Not only the Roman antiquity knew of such a decline, 
In a similar period, we have a period of great instability in China as well. And then, but unrelated, we get collapse of cultures in Southern America. So, for instance, in Teotihuacan, um, where a sudden rebellion seems to wipe out a great culture in Mesoamerica, um, where you see that all the buildings of the elites, the temples and the representative buildings were attacked and burned down as if the population had turned on its own elite. And that seems to have been pre uh, preceded by a period of drought. And again, the climate seems to have played a big role in this. But we also come to periods of greater ease, the medieval warm period that allowed the population in Europe to develop greatly, but also allowed rats to spread. And at some point, those two met, those two met um, through the intermediary of Yezidius Pestis, the, um, the originator of the Black Death. So the Black Death that devastated China first and then Asia, and then in the end, Europe in the 14th century was certainly a climate-related catastrophe as well, and changed the world forever, changed the culture of these societies forever. In China, it led to the rise of the Ming dynasty. It also led to the demise of the Khmer Empire, And in Europe, it was probably one of the most important factors in the beginning of the Renaissance and a different way at looking at the value of human life and in the, of the literal truth of religious ideas. So again, we see cl climate-related events are so thick in our culture, so important for our culture. Then we come, of course, to the 16th, 17th centuries, to the Little Ice Age. Well, I've talked about that in previous episodes. But once you take scientific evidence of the past of nature and correlate it with the past of human societies, you begin to get an image of a very close correlation and you begin to see that like any other life form, human societies are, have to mold themselves into their natural conditions very closely. And when these conditions change, human societies also have changed. In fact, when they haven't changed, they have broken and vanished, not always with a bang, not always as the result of a volcanic eruption or a great invasion or a biblical flood, much more often through gradual processes. <clears throat> when societies didn't change, they broke, not often through one bang, not often through one volcanic eruption or a biblical flood or some other such catastrophe, but really with a whimper in a much more gradual way. The great hydraulic civilizations, as they're called, an idea that has become a bit unfashionable, but the societies that were built on 
intricate systems of canalization that allowed to multiply the harvest and to feed much larger populations, well, these societies that you saw throughout Asia, um, especially, and but also to some degree in Mesoamerica, these canal systems, they needed a lot of upkeep. They needed skilled people to plan and build them. They needed people to be press-ganged into working on the canals. They needed administration. They needed tax to be collected to finance these building works. They needed quite an intricate network of state. And whenever that network became damaged because there was a famine and people couldn't pay tax or there was an outside attack and the canals were damaged um, very often also purposefully in war. This entire system could break down very quickly. So a rigid system, a system that had a lot of systemic demands was also very vulnerable, although it could perform excellently well. Um, perhaps we think a little bit of our globalized economy today that seems to be one point of comparison there. They are both systems that are very intricate. Globalized economy is a lot more intricate than the canalization in ancient Mesopotamia, but perhaps the same system applies. And of course, that brings us back to the question, well, what of all these things is applicable to our reality today? What is the takeaway from all this? Have societies adapted successfully and survived? Well, look at ancient Rome. Ancient Rome has certainly fallen and vanished from the map, but it did try to adapt to its problems of overextension, which made it impractical to communicate over such distances, to send armies or even um, goods through such distances. It reacted by splitting into an eastern and a western part, but it eventually sort of molded into the culture of Constantinople, the culture of the Catholic Church, the different empires of Europe, and perhaps the ancient Rome as an ideal. And as such, there's a surviving ancient Rome, even if ancient Rome is dead. But admittedly, cultural survival through adaptation is very rare. It asks a culture to change its cultural DNA to adapt to this change by a very deep transformation in itself. If you want an unflattering comparison, humanity has always had a very important partner organism, namely yeast. Yeast gives us bread and wine and beer, and yeast is quite a primitive organism that when it encounters nourishment, sugar, it will eat whatever it can and will know a gigantic population explosion. And then it will suddenly implode this population because the yeast will starve and choke on its own excrement. Well, it would be nice to think that in the several hundreds of millions of years of evolution that divide us from yeast, we have substantially and as a species learned more, learned more wisdom. It would be nice to think that 
Marie Curie and Plato and Mozart have made us into a species that is a little bit more exciting than yeast, but as a species collectively, this seems to be our cultural DNA, our natural DNA perhaps, to eat everything that is in our way, even if we are a species that actually understands that it's doing that. That leads me to the perhaps best embodiment of this entire question that I know of. Um, it is a graph from NASA. It tells you, um, it shows the CO2 uh, concentration in the atmosphere over the last 800,000 years. And I think it may just be the most eloquent line produced in the history of humanity. That's what I'll be talking about next time on the Blomcast. I welcome, as always, your comments and suggestions and questions. Keep them coming, and I will do my best to answer them. Um, so tell me what you think, and come back and listen to another episode of the Blomcast. Philip Blom says, see you soon.